Welcome to the Cost of Not Paying Attention, hosted by nationally recognized speaker Janine Hamner Holman. Janine knows what it takes to attract and retain world class talent. Join her here each week on the Cost of Not Paying Attention as we use brain science, leadership, management, and real life challenges managers face to explore the places where we aren't paying attention. Welcome to The Cost of Not Paying Attention. I'm your host, Janine Hamner-Holman. What am I paying attention to today? Illness and the power of our perspectives. So I don't want this to go down a super dreary hole. And I have a friend who is in the final stages of being a cancer warrior, and unfortunately, she's losing her battle. And I have another friend who, man, this guy, if you ever have the opportunity to meet him, his name is Bill Valentine. Bill spent his career as an architect. He was the head of the largest architectural firm in the world called HOK. He is the most humble, down to earth, happy, glass half full to boiling over kind of human who has also been suffering from acute leukemia for years, like a decade, maybe even 11 or 12 years, such that really, statistically, he should not be here. And yet he is. He is here. He is living his best life, even though just like in everybody else's life, there have been challenges. There have been other health issues, kids and grandkids and spouse and things happen. And through it all, his perspective is life is great. I am great. Everything is going well, which I think can make such a difference in all of the circumstances into which we're thrown. Circumstances are circumstances, and we all deal with them. And our perspective, our outlook, the lens through which we look can make an enormous difference in our resilience, in how we manage through those things. Which brings me right to our guest for today. Terry Tucker is a delight. Y'all are really going to enjoy getting to know him. And he is an international podcast guest on the topics of motivation, self-development, and mental health. He has enjoyed an uncommon and extraordinary life. He's been a college basketball player, a marketing executive, a hospital administrator, a SWAT team hostage negotiator, and most recently, a cancer warrior. Terry is the founder of Motivational Check, LLC, and the author of the book, Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Welcome, Terry. Thanks, Janine. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. I am so looking forward to it as well. Thank you so much for being here with us. You're welcome. 
So I'm going to start the way that I often do, which is what is something that you have become aware of that people are not paying attention to, either intentionally or unintentionally? And then what's the cost of that inattention? That's a great question. When we were talking before the show, it's like, how am I going to go? Where am I going to go with that? And I think where I'd like to go with it, as you mentioned, one of the jobs that I've had in my life is a SWAT team hostage negotiator. And what I learned from there and what I don't think people are doing a very good job of as a whole is the importance of listening. And I'm talking about here the difference between listening to understand versus listening to respond. And I see a lot of people in that, perhaps Janine, say what you're going to say because I want to get my two cents in versus, oh, okay, Janine, I hear what you're saying. I may agree with you. I may not agree with you, but help me understand where you're coming from here. And I think if we would do the latter more or better, we would be so much better as a society as opposed to everybody right now that's just screaming at each other. And by doing that, nobody's hearing what the other person is saying, let alone understanding where they're coming from. So I think we're kind of at a point in in our society where we're just not doing a very good job of listening to understand. I think most people can probably figure out the downside of that is you don't know what's going on. Oh, I didn't realize you said that because I was screaming too and I didn't hear what you had to say. Right. Either I was screaming or I was figuring out my next thing to say. Often we are listening for agreement. Like, okay, what do I think about what he is saying? And then do I agree with it? Yay. We have agreement. We have connection. And us humans, we need connection. We need to feel like we belong. So, okay, cool. We have connection. Or I do not agree with him. So now we don't have connection. And then either how am I going to rebut what you said, or how am I going to get you to see things the way that I see them? And so if that's where I'm going, if Terry is totally wrong about that, and I totally disagree, and now how am I going to rebut what he said, either to rebut what he said or to get him onto my team, I am no longer listening to you. I am now formulating strategy in my head And I actually, time in the time of COVID is very weird. I was about to say it was about a month ago. It was probably about a year ago. (laughs) Really, I was on a team of folks from Harvard Business Review. And one of the things that we were discussing is that all human beings think that we can multitask. We think we can listen and think at the same time. We think we can listen and type at the same time. We think that we can watch TV and be on our phones and be paying attention to both things at the same time. The human brain is literally incapable of doing that. All you're doing is switching back and forth really fast between TV and phone and TV and phone. And the more that we do that, literally, the stupider we get, like our IQ points start going down. And so when I think I'm listening to you, to the brilliance that you have to share, but what I'm doing instead is formulating my counter argument. A, I'm not understanding anything about you or your perspective or what brilliance you want to share with me. And B, I'm not learning anything. And so I think the more that we can slow down 
and really pay attention to each other and listen to learn, listen to understand, listen to like, okay, so what's important to you, Terry? And as you're sharing with me, instead of thinking about, well, do I agree or do I disagree? Maybe I can think about, okay, so what's likely to be important to him? And keep listening through that lens, because then you and I are going to have an authentic conversation and we're going to have an authentic connection. Yeah. I also think that you kind of talked about it a minute ago with just the situation of, well, Terry's wrong. And so what do we do in that case? What do a lot of people do? They judge. Right. Because it's easier to judge than it is to think. Somebody said that wasn't me, but I love it. (laughs) It's so true. It, It is. It's easier to judge. Well, you're not on my team. There must be something wrong with you. And I think that's the other problem today, especially in politics. If we do not line up, if our ideologies don't line up, well, then you must be bad. It's like, why do you have to be bad? Why can't we just disagree on a topic? And Kristen thing, uh, hate the sin, love the sinner. I mean, why do you have to be bad? Because we don't agree on something. I've never understood that. And it drives me nuts when I hear that. (laughs) So when you think about listening and when you think about this opportunity that we all have every day to get better at listening, how then does that connect to what you're up to in the world? Because you're up to some big stuff, Terry. Yeah, I think that was one thing that I learned as a negotiator. I mean, a lot of what we did as police officers was, not a lot, probably 99% of what we did was face-to-face with another human being. So I'm pulling you over to give you a ticket. I'm answering a radio run for a domestic or a fight, or I'm knocking on your door to say, call the hospital, grandma died, and they can't get a hold of you. That's face-to-face. Well, as negotiators, we were not face-to-face with the person we're negotiating with. So we had to figure things out based on what people were saying, what they weren't saying, and how they were saying it. So I've come to a point in my life now where I'm I'm really kind of tuned in to what people say. And not just tuned into what they say, but how they act. Because what drives me nuts is people who say one thing and then do something else. So I don't put a lot of stock in what people say. I put a whole lot more stock in what people do. Show me that your actions match your words. So for the last 10 years, I've been dealing with this rare form of cancer and had to deal with doctors, nurses, therapists, all kinds of people that some of them are very direct. Here it is. And I don't have to figure out what's going on. Others are they're kind of on the fringes. And I'm like, what are you really trying to tell me? Am I in trouble? Am I not in trouble? Is this good? Is this bad? What's the deal? So I think listening when I was a negotiator has really helped me today in being more involved in my cancer journey, because I want my life to be shaped by the decisions I made, not the decisions that I didn't make or that somebody else made for me. Yeah. So I want to pick up on that for just a minute. And then I want to go back to something else that you said. Dan Pink has a new book out called Regret. And I love what he's talking about because so he invited people to email or send him information about their biggest regrets in life. And overwhelmingly, the single biggest thing that people regret is not going for something, not asking that girl to the dance, not swinging out and trying for that job, not swinging out and opening their own business, playing small. 
And so I love what you just said around, I want the decisions that are impacting my life, affecting my life. And you're actually talking about your life, (laughs) Not, (laughs) not just the experience of your life, but in fact, your existence here on the planet being shaped by decisions that you're actively making. And there's that great quote, it may have been John Lennon, who said, life is what happens while you're making other plans. So the more I think that we can get present to the decisions that we're making, and as we all know, not making a decision is also a decision. So the more active we can get in our lives and in our own experiences, the more rich our experiences are. I agree. And I always tell young people, especially that there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do, but it scares you. Go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret, just as you said, are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do. And by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them. I know. I'm starting a new initiative around inclusion and belonging. And I was talking with my parents about it. And My dad was a very successful businessman. My mom was instructor and teacher at the collegiate level. So these are both smart, accomplished people. And they both were like, wow, that's big. Like, yeah, (laughs) it's big and it's scary. It scares the heck out of me, which is how I know it's what I am being called to do. It is what my heart is being called to do. Then I'll be talking more about that in a a future episode (laughs) once it gets a little more formed. So I want to go back. You are now for 10 years dealing with this issue around wellness. And in our first conversation, one of the things that you and I were talking about is the fact that there's a very interesting correlation happening in organizations around organizational wellness and sort of our personal health and the health of our organizations. And I think it was last year, the World Health Organization designated burnout as a problem happening in organizations that were not effectively figuring out how to help people manage stress, as opposed to it being a personal phenomenon. I am burnt out. No, your organization is burning you out. And so I think that shift is really interesting. And I'm really curious from the work that you're doing and the folks with whom you are having opportunities to speak. How do you see sort of wellness, health playing out sort of writ large and both on the personal level and on the level of organizations? Yeah. I mean, if I go back to when I was a policeman, they were And I was in Cincinnati. In Cincinnati, I mean, we had a psychologist. You had access to the psychologist. But there was sort of that unwritten rule that, yeah, you don't really want to go see. We're tough cops. You don't go talk to them. We don't do that stuff. That's right. We see man's inhumanity to man. We see death. We see ugliness. We see helplessness and hopelessness. But you can't let that affect you. I mean, you look at the divorce rate for police officers. You look at the alcohol and drug rate. All of those are much higher than the normal population. And I was doing a podcast earlier today and somebody asked me about that. It's like, how did you deal with that? And I said, I certainly had the opportunity to go out after a shift to the bar and let's have a drink and stuff like that. But I never did that because 
I need what grounded me. And I think we all need something that grounds us. We all need something that we know this is the bedrock of our soul. And for me, that was my family. So it was like, no, I don't want to go out to the bar. I love you guys. You're great. I'll do anything in the world for you. But I'm going home to my family because that's what grounds me now. And so now I'm in, I spend most of my time when I'm not at home at the hospital, getting treatment and things like that. And I work with an incredibly great group of nurses. And one of the things that, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to read the book Legacy. It's written by a man by the name of James Kerr. And it's about the New Zealand national rugby team, which by all accounts is the most successful sports franchise in any sport, in any country of all times. And what I found interesting when I was reading this book, and I wrote like four pages of notes while I was reading it, was, and I don't know anything about rugby, so I'm not going to sit here and tell you I do. But you think, okay, when this team, this great team, and they're called the All Blacks because their uniforms are all black, and when the All Blacks are bringing on a new player, you would think, well, you're bringing on somebody for technical competency. I'm good at rugby or whatever position for rugby. And yes, they do to a point. But the two things that they really focus on are one, character. What kind of person are you? I mean, when you lose, do you kick the dog? Do you go home and hit your wife? I mean, are you that kind of a person or can you handle defeat without being a loser? And the other thing is humility. And I think back to my day, number of job interviews I had, and you always go into these interviews, you're thinking, boy, I better have all the answers to all the questions. Otherwise, I'm probably never going to get this job. And what the all Blacks say is, no. We don't expect you to have all the answers, you individually, but us collectively, us as a team, we will figure out the answers. I read that book and then I'm sitting here with all these nurses and I'm like, man, these are people of good character. These are kind, caring people. And they're also incredibly humble. It's like, oh no, we're just doing our job. No, you guys are great. (laughs) And so it's interesting how it dovetails into something that is going on in New Zealand is the same thing. Now, I don't know if they consciously hire nurses in my unit for that, but it certainly seems like they are the kind of people that are just caring, loving, giving, and they're also humble about doing that. I don't like going for treatment, but I'll tell you, they make it a whole lot better. Uh, And yeah, so A, big shout out to nurses. My husband had hip replacement surgery, uh, about six weeks ago now. And then last week he had a minor operation on his hand to deal with carpal tunnel and the fact that he had no feeling in his hand anymore. So we've had the opportunity to be around some really wonderful, caring, especially nurses. Yay for surgeons and all of those people too. But really it's the nursing care. It's the people that you're dealing with day in and day out who were there for you. And growing up, I had long hair. And so the joke was always, they would hold your hair when you were throwing up. Like they're the ones that have your back, that literally rub your back, that are there for you. And I think one of the things that's so interesting about that and about the story about the All Black New Zealand team is this idea of hiring for personality and essentially what used to be called the soft skills, which I call the superpowers, but it's that whole category, our ability to connect with other people, our ability to understand what's happening within ourselves. It's having emotional intelligence. It's then being able to make good decisions. It's creating a psychologically safe work environment. 
When we do those things, when we create that environment, there's a story, and I can't remember what right now, which football team it is, but there was a football team that was on a big losing streak. They had lost for a number of consecutive years. They'd had losing seasons. And then they brought in their head coach, new head coach, who like, yeah, he understood football, but he, and he had incredibly high emotional intelligence. And so he really connected with his players as humans, not as players, not as producers, not as goal scorers or stoppers. He connected with them as people. And so then their interest in winning for coach skyrocketed. And they went on to win a Super Bowl very quickly after hiring this coach who just turned around the organizational culture of the team. And I think about different professions and different companies and different organizations that are making those decisions. I'm, I'm getting to fly up to the Bay Area to be with my friend and I'm going to fly on Southwest. And you know when you're on Southwest Airlines because you feel the personalities of the flight attendants. It's part of their culture that if you are gay or straight or black or Latino or whoever you are, you bring your whole self to work. And these folks in general are super happy. They are super engaged. They are happy to be there. They are happy to greet you. And it's a very different experience from flying on most other airline carriers. And Southwest has made a big investment in emotional intelligence and in training their people and in hiring to that type. Like they want folks who are bubbly and energetic and like, yes, they can get down the nuts and bolts of what you need to know about managing the plane and managing the plane in an emergency. But really they're hiring for disposition. They're hiring for soft skills as opposed to technical know-how. And I think that there's a major sea change that's happening in that direction. And I think you need that. I mean, I think back to my time when I was a high school basketball coach, it's not a one size fits all. It's not like, well, here are the rules and you all handle the rules. I mean, when somebody would make a mistake, you had to know, okay, I need to get in that person's face and yell and scream at him versus the player that I just need to look at them because they're going to be 10 times harder on themselves than I ever am versus the player in the middle. And that's the nuance of coaching. It's not just throwing the ball out there and, and saying, hey, I'm going to teach you some X's and O's and we're going to go out, like you say, and win the Super Bowl. No, it's do you understand how I operate? Do you understand how to motivate me and keep me engaged? And it's not a, well, you're a football player. So all I got to do is this and it works for everybody. It doesn't. And the same thing is true in a business and stuff like that. You have people that, oh yeah, I made a mistake. And you're like, you better never make that mistake again versus the people that you just need to look at. It was like, you know what? Yeah, totally screwed up. It'll never happen again. And you know it won't <laughs> you happen You know again. it'll never right. happen it'll again. It'll never happen again because they'll be <laughs> 10 times harder on themselves than you're going to be on them. Right. And then you have those other folks, which is one of the things that I think is so interesting in thinking about the last two years before we started recording today. One of the things that you and I were talking about is the opportunity to find whether it's a golden nugget, whether it is a lesson, whether it is a silver lining, find something 
that is an opportunity or is positive outcome in the midst of challenges. And we've certainly been going through a challenging couple of years. And when I think about the shift that is happening with employers understanding, oh, wait, you are a whole person. And it may be that you're having a hard time right now. The rates of depression and anxiety have skyrocketed through COVID. 41% of people are dealing with clinical depression. 76% of people are dealing with clinical anxiety. One in three, more than one in three, three out of four. And so realizing like, okay, you screwed that up but you don't normally screw up anything. You're normally really on top of it. And so maybe rather than getting in your face or just giving you that look, instead, I'm going to say, Terry, is something going on? Like, And open up the possibility of a real conversation where then you can share with me, actually, I have this person who's sick or I'm dealing with a health issue or my mother-in-law has just come for a stay or the kids are having a hard time. I've got a good friend whose daughter is dealing with a mental health issue. People are going through stuff and people have always been going through stuff, but the pace of stuff that we are going through seems accelerated and the number of people dealing with stuff is definitely escalated and something really great has happened with us being more willing not necessarily everybody, not necessarily truly willing, but in general, being a little more willing to have conversations where we open up to each other and we're willing to have a conversation about mental health or about your physical health. So I'm seeing some mistakes. This is really uncharacteristic of you. What's going on? And sometimes that then also takes me sharing something about what's happening in my life so that you know actually it is a safe place. You can share with me. I'm not going to then take that and beat you over the head with it. Right. And that's a connection. That's making a connection. When I was a negotiator, when I would talk to groups and stuff like that, people would always be like, well, I think somebody might be getting ready to harm themselves or commit suicide, but I didn't want to say anything. And I used to tell people, we used to say stuff all the time. We would ask point blank, hey, are you thinking of killing yourself? Well, aren't you putting that idea into their head? I'm like, no, if they're not going to do it, they will fire back at you like, no, you of idiot. Course I'm, I'm not, not going to kill myself. Yeah, I'm not thinking of doing that. <laughs> but if they are thinking of that, you open the door where you might just give them that opportunity to step through that. And it's like, oh, thank God, somebody cares. Somebody is willing to at least listen to me And so I used to tell people, no, I mean, we have this intuition. We have this kind of, hmm, something's going on here. If you think somebody's going to harm us, ask them. Just flat out ask them. Are you going to hurt yourself? You thinking about killing yourself? Because if they're not, they're going to tell you that. And if they are, you just may have saved their life. But by doing nothing, I mean, yeah, you kind of take yourself off the hook. But on the other hand, man, imagine how good you're feeling if they open up to you and they don't kill themselves because all you did was ask, like you say, hey, how you doing? Today? Are you okay? Are you thinking of hurting yourself? And boom, you just opened the floodgates and now they got somebody, oh, somebody cares about me. You made that connection. So I love that. And I want to tie that back to your experience in the police force, because I have had the opportunity to know a lot of police officers and a number of police chiefs. 
And there is a challenge in that culture, just like in a number of other cultures where the organizational culture does not support saying, I need help or going and getting help. I mean, the the things that cops see on a day-to-day basis, when my husband and I were on our honeymoon, we ended up actually connecting with two different police officers. It was very interesting. And we were in Tahiti and connecting with an officer from Baltimore PD and an officer from somewhere in the Midwest, maybe Chicago. And they were sharing these stories of the opioid epidemic and kids as young as like eight overdosing on drugs. I mean, you see the worst of humanity and talk about a place where it needs to be okay to ask for help. Because if that were my day-to-day existence, (laughs) I would need help. I would need help managing myself in the face of such tragedy and sadness and wasted opportunities and just the whole world of it. And not to mention all of the anger that's being directed at cops, some for good reasons, some for not so much. So it's a tricky situation right now. And so what do you do if you are somebody in one of those professions who's listening to us today, or if you want to be supportive of folks in those professions where the idea of getting help, going to the therapist, doing talk therapy, that's just a big no-no. Yeah. A lot of times when I talk about this, I say to people, like, imagine if your job was like this. One, you made less money than a plumber. (laughs) Two, every time you went to work, nobody wanted you there. And three, everybody lied to you. How long would you do that job? That's a cop's job. We make less money than a plumber. Nobody wants us there. I mean, it's never a good thing when a cop is around. And everybody lies to you because they're trying to put their story as the one you believe. So you'll take the other guy to jail. Or even if I'm just speeding a little bit, (laughs) even if you pull me over and I was like, oh, officer, was I speeding? I mean, how many times have I done that? I'm lying to your face. I knew full well I was going 70 and a 50. And we know you know that. Exactly. So you think about that in terms of that's the job. That's the starting line. That's where you start from. And then you build on, as you just said, all the things that you see, the death, the things that people do. When I was in the drug unit, I'm like, what people do to get drugs, how they sell themselves, their bodies and things like that. I mean, you see all that kind of stuff. And again, I go back to, I think you have to be grounded in something, whether it's faith, whether it's a family, whether it's a girlfriend, boyfriend, friend, somebody that you can just say, hey, look, I'm having a tough day today. And when I was working in Cincinnati, I remember I had a guy that I used to ride with. My badge number was 374. His was 347. And occasionally I would ride with him and he ended up dying one night. He was killed in the line of duty. And I remember going back to the district afterwards and one of the bosses was like, how you doing? And I'm like, I'm okay. I mean, I was grounded. I had that family. If people will just do that. And like I just said before, if you suspect something, if something happened and you just want to check in, do that. Hey, how you doing? How things going? You okay? You want to go and get something to eat after work? Check in with people and find out how they are. And then the other thing is you've got to have a ton of courage to say, you know what? I'm not okay. I am not okay. And if you think about what we do, we carry a gun and a badge. 
And we have the ability to take your life and to take your life on three hours of sleep. And I just had a fight with my wife and my boss is on my case. And now you're sending me out on the street to deal with the public. You have to have a tremendous amount of courage to be able to say, I need help. It's not a profession. I think the same thing with the military. It's not a profession that is to the point where it's like, yeah, you need help. We're going to get you help. Or I've identified you as somebody that needs help. I mean, we're great about doing that. Hey, somebody's beating up their wife. We're going to take their guns away. <laughs> we're great about that. But we're not about taking care of ourselves to the point where you're saying, I need help and I need it right now. I can't wait. And I don't know what the answer is. I think it's got to be agencies, chiefs, the rank and file saying, it's okay. We get it. We see what you see on a daily basis. We've been through that. It's okay to need help. And when you come back to the job after you get your help, you're good. We're going to be here. We're going to support you. And I think it's better now than it was 20 years ago when my grandfather was a policeman back in the 1920s and 1950s. But I'm not sure we're there yet. And it's just, somebody's got to do that job. But we also have to support the people that do that job and understand that you know what, we're asking you to make a split second life and death decision. And sometimes you're going to be wrong. And that doesn't make you a bad person. That just means you made a mistake. I think what you're pointing to in terms of the strength that it takes to say, I need help. We have it in our society that to be vulnerable is to be weak. And in my experience and in talking with law enforcement and talking with military, the reality is 180 degrees the opposite. It takes strength to be vulnerable. It is one of the strongest things someone can do. And there's a woman named Brene Brown who talks about vulnerability a lot. And she has this line, which I need to find because this is not an exact translation, but essentially what she says is the thing that I most want to see in you, the thing that is most going to connect me to you, is the thing that I least want to show you, which is my vulnerability. And when we get vulnerable with other people, that is when we get connected. That is when we really start to feel like, oh, you are my people. Even if you might believe very different things from me. You might have a very different lived experience. You might have very different world perspective than I do. But when we can, and when we can get vulnerable with each other and tell each other what it's like being over here in this body, walking through the world, that's then it goes right back to that listening to learn, listening to understand. When we can share honestly and truthfully about what is happening with us, then we get connected to other people. And even if you're not, quote unquote, my people, you're now my people. Like we're now connected at a deep level. Yeah, you have to be strong enough to give part of yourself away. And if you can do that, you're right. You can make incredibly strong connections with other people because they feel you care about them. It's not all about you. And think about our society today. I mean, it's so much of it's all about me. I'm the most important thing in the world. I should get a trophy because we came in last place. No, you're not. And I always tell people, you're unique. 
but you're not special. You have unique gifts and talents that I don't have, that you don't have, but you're not special. And stop this attitude of, hey, it's all about me. That does nothing but disconnect me with you. If you're not willing to share because you think it's all about you, then I don't want to have anything to do with you. I mean, that's going on with young people. It's going on in schools. It's going on in workforces where, hey, I'm right out of college. I have no experience, but I want the corner office $100,000 in a company car. Right. (laughs) And I want to fly to Mars, but that's not probably going to happen either. So, but it's that kind of an attitude. David Brooks, the columnist at the New York Times, really great guy. I was just listening. He did a five minute TED talk back in 2014 that talks about the difference between our resume virtues and our eulogy virtues. And I would encourage you or any of your audience to go and listen to it because it's amazing. He said, there's a conflict. There's a war that goes on between being the, I want to be the best. I want to do us versus I have to lose myself to find myself. I have to give myself to somebody else in order to have that friendship. We don't teach that. We teach the, you need to be powerful. You need to be aggressive. You need to build companies. You need to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, you need to be all this stuff. They talk about the Adam one and the Adam two. And that's the Adam one. And the Adam one is what we spend all our time on. We don't spend a lot of time on the Adam two, which is our eulogy virtues, which are in a lot of ways inverse to what we think. You've got to give yourself to find yourself. So it's five minutes. And I think it's really powerful if you spend some time thinking about it. Wonderful. Well, we will put a link to that in the show notes. And you can find the show notes, especially on my website, which is janinehamner.com slash blogs. I don't know why it's under the blogs. Just there's some things in the world that don't entirely make sense, but that's where you can find it. It also makes me think of maybe it was the third episode I did of the podcast. It was back in the early days. I did an interview with a gentleman named Bob Berg, who wrote the book, who co-wrote the book, The Go-Giver. And it's a short little book. It's a great podcast interview. So look for that. Really, it's about how when we give of ourselves, when we give to other people, we get so much more in return. And if we give in order to get, we're probably not going to get it back. When we give of ourselves selflessly, when we are happy to serve, when we have that idea of servant leadership, I am here to support my team in what it is that they need versus to exalt myself. That is when the good stuff happens. That is when the good stuff happens for us. And that is when the good stuff happens for the world. As I know you were, I was raised in a Christian church. And one of the things was always talked about is the kingdom of God and the idea that really the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here and now. It is not what happens in the afterlife when we die. Our opportunity is to have the kingdom of God be here and to live our lives in that way, that we want to be of service to others and the world. And when we give in that way, it always comes back. It does. And I've always it's the believed idea that. of karma. Yeah. I've always believed that, that regardless of what you do, we're put here to serve, whether you believe in God, to serve your God, but to certainly serve each other. 
And yeah, so many people do. Well, God is some mystical being that's out there. No, I don't think so. I think God is inside each one of us. And that connection that we make is made out of love. And certainly guys and cops and stuff. Love is not a word you hear a lot in locker rooms and in police districts. And, no, it and is parents. not. No, right. but it's something that I think is important that because we need to love what we do, we need to love ourselves, we need to love our fellow man. It's the overarching thing that I think for all of us that we have to do that makes us the people we are in the society that we are. Yeah, it's interesting. I just spun around in my chair to look at my bookcase. Brene Brown's Dare to Lead. He has a whole part in that book where she is talking with a woman who is senior in the Navy, who was looking at old naval code around sort of how we bring up our naval officers. And she was noticing that in old naval code, like from the 40s, the word love was very present. The word loving what we do, loving our fellow Marines and servicemen and naval officers enlisted. Officers, yeah. yes. The folks there with us in the tent and loving the service that we get to provide and loving our country. And the word love is all over the place. And over the years, it has been more and more and more exercised from the vocabulary. But if you think about that, like, Okay, so when they were forming the Navy, they were thinking about love. It creates a whole new opportunity to rethink how we think about work, how we think about service, how we think about the armed forces and the, all the protective services. I'm on the board of the Pasadena Fire Foundation and all the stuff that firefighters go through. I mean, we have an opportunity to rethink these sort of, I don't know the right way to say this. Back in the day, I would have said all the manly men careers. That's not the right thing anymore because there's many women who serve in those careers, but sort of the tough jobs that are out there. I think there is an opportunity not only to rethink those, but also to rethink the way that we think about work. It's one of the big changes that's happening with the millennials, which I was talking to a group of CEOs the other day about a study that was done at MIT that looked at the great resignation and the numbers of people quitting. And relative to salary, organizations being toxic was 10.4 times more important to the people that they surveyed. And so the CEOs said, yeah, well, we're all of those millennials. It's like, well, in two and a half years, 75% of the workforce is going to be millennials and the Gen Zs coming after them. So regardless of what you may think about the millennials as a group, the oldest of which are now 40, by the way. So these are no longer young whippersnappers entirely. They're 26 to 40. But the values that they have, really having a job where they understand how that's making a difference in the world how my job is connected to the organization and how the organization is up to doing good things. Whether you're making shoes or clocks or pens or customer service or picking up the trash or protecting and serving the community, whatever it is that you're doing, how is that making the world a better place? And I think that kind of listening, that kind of leaning in to really 
what are the things that matter to these generations that are now an enormous percent of our workers? And if we don't get a handle on this, I mean, the statistics are this year, between 44 and 56% of people are planning on quitting their jobs. Half of the workers are planning on quitting their jobs because of toxic organizations. And when you break down toxic organizations, the biggest thing in there is inattention to diversity. And so like these things that we think of as like, well, that's nice, or maybe it's good or the right thing or the politically correct thing to do. No, it's actually important for business. So organizations that are more diverse are 37% more profitable than organizations that aren't. And if you're not doing something about it, you're going to lose half your workforce. So it gives us an opportunity right back to where we started. And folks, when Terry and I started prepping for this interview, I said, I really am trying to keep these conversations around 30 minutes. (laughs) I'm failing miserably. But I also told him, if we were having a really great conversation, I was not going to cut it off. But I'm going to start wrapping it up here because otherwise we're going to be doing this podcast. The sun will have set. Part one and part two, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We will have had our martinis. Yeah, I will have missed my flight. So, but what it creates is this opportunity to listen. It's this opportunity to listen in a very different way to who we are, to what folks really need in order to be connected to each other and to the work that we're doing, which takes up an enormous amount of our lives. It does. I was talking to my wife the other day. My dad was the national director of real estate for McDonald's for a number of years. And I remember his boss would be like, hey, why don't you bring, my mom's name's Marilyn, why don't you bring Marilyn and the boys over for dinner on Sunday? It wasn't like, oh, it's the weekend. Heck no, I don't want to have anything to do with the people that I work with. It was no, families were connected. We are a family. I mean, my dad loved what he did. He loved the people that he worked with. I mean, I've been working for, well, 30 years before I got cancer, but I don't ever remember anybody saying, hey, why don't you bring your wife and daughter over for dinner on Sunday night or something like, just a spontaneous, not a, oh, let's plan it six months from now. Hey, just come on over. We'll throw some burgers on the grill. Just be real laid back. And I'm like, no, we don't do that anymore. I mean, we don't connect with the people that we work with. A lot of times we don't even connect with the people that we live with. (laughs) Well, on that note, this has been a wonderful conversation. Terry, thank you so much for your energy, for your spirit, for your listening for your holding possibility for the world to be the kingdom of God, for us to be creating that in the here and now. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, Janine, thanks for having me on. I always say it's nice people like you that allow me to come on and we have these conversations. And if our conversation makes a difference in one person's life, then today's been a good day. Amen to that. (sighs) I am Janine Hamner-Holman, and this has been The Cost of Not Paying Attention. Remember, great leaders make great teams. Until next time. On behalf of Janine Hamner-Holman, thanks for paying attention. This has been the cost of not paying attention. Head on over to our website, www.janinehamner.com forward slash podcast for access to the show notes as well as additional resources. Remember, great leaders make great teams.
Anxiety. 